This comes from Psalm 65. And the idea comes from our vow of praise that we took. And I hope we're all still uh, practicing our vows. This is a song that hopefully will help us to practice the vows. I'd like us to learn it. After I have uh, sung it through, I'm going to have it uh, flashed up here so that you can also pick up the words and sing with me. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion too. You, our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion too. You, our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion too. You, our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion too. You, our vows will be fulfilled oh you who hear prayer to you all men will come when we were overwhelmed by sins you atoned for our transgressions praise awaits you oh god in zion too our vows will be fulfilled praise awaits you oh god in zion to you our vows will be fulfilled blessed is the man you choose and bring near to live in your courts we are filled with the good of your house of your holy temple praise awaits you oh god in zion too you our vows will be fulfilled praise awaits you oh god in zion too you our vows will be fulfilled okay i'm gonna ask lights be turned on and I want you to join with us with me there's only me up here ready okay praise awaits you oh God in Zion to you our vows will be fulfilled praise awaits God in Zion to you our vows will be fulfilled praise awaits you oh God in Zion to you our vows will be fulfilled praise awaits you oh God in Zion to you our vows will be fulfilled sing that again Praise awaits you, O 
God in Zion too, you our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, you our vows will be fulfilled. Oh, you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you atoned for our transgressions. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to you our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to you our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to you our vows will be fulfilled. Blessed is the man you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to you our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to you our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to you our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion to you our vows will be fulfilled. Let's do it one more time with a little bit of heartfelt praise in our hearts. Oh, praise awaits you, oh God in Zion to you our God will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, oh God in Zion to our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to you our vows will be fulfilled. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion, to you our vows will be Matohu manaim shevet achim gam yachad 
Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity.
Amen. It's good to be together, and part of that psalm says that where brethren dwell together in unity, there the Lord commands a blessing. One of the blessings that God has commanded on our behalf is the speaker of the morning, Brother Don Basham. He's been a personal friend for almost 12 years, and he's also known to you probably as a resident teacher and the consulting editor for New Wine Magazine. Don has blessed us much with his teaching and in the fact that God had drawn us together to seek to be one, he commanded a blessing of really good teaching. Don is among the best that we've heard and had pleasure to fellowship with, and it's a real honor to present to you this morning, Brother Don Basham. Will you welcome him, please? Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. It's a privilege to be here to uh, share with you this morning and to fill in for Brother Charles. Not that anybody can ever take his place, but we do appreciate the privilege of sharing with you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Numbers chapter 32. I was tempted to say, let's turn to the Gospel of Mark. But <laughs> Numbers chapter 32. We're going to be doing a rather lengthy scripture study this morning. It's, in fact, I'm going to be reading a considerable portion of this chapter and several others to lay the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about. The title of my message this morning, The Wrong Side of the River. Some years ago, I preached a message in our convention back in, this, I guess it was in 78, when everybody got together. My message then was called The, Wrong, the Other Side of the Road. So this one's called The Wrong Side of the River. You'll understand why when we get into the story. The subject has to do with uh, removing the barriers to unity. The greatest barrier to unity has to do with our inadequacy when it comes time to relating properly to one another. For a number of years, I had what I would call a mistaken idea of maturity not totally mistaken, but certainly inadequate. Uh, because of my preoccupation with the charismatic renewal and the gifts and supernatural happenings of the Holy Spirit and all of those other wonderful things that happens when people begin to move in God and to experience His supernatural power, out of that I came to a kind of immature understanding of what maturity was. I sort of felt that to really be mature would be to be uh, to be a real saint would be to have great faith. That is, to be mature would be able to have such faith that you could just about pray in a miracle for every situation. That, uh, that if people just would have enough faith and all our problems would be solved. But I've come to see that's not true. Now it is true that, that faith is important. It is true that miracles happen in response to faith. And it's true that prayer and faith can help in every situation or help us prepare for every situation, but it doesn't solve every problem. A miracle won't solve every problem. 
faith and uh, answered prayers won't solve every problem. Mainly because one of the major areas of our problems has to do with how we relate to one another. One of the marks of a mature Christian, one of the basic marks of a mature Christian is how he handles his problems with other people. And through the recent years of our experience as we've come into covenant relationship and struggle to relate properly to one another, we've come to understand that. That the people that you don't spend a lot of time with, you don't have much problem with. But your problems increase in relationship to how much time you spend together. And so the more intimate the relationship between people, the more fraught that relationship is with the possibility of difficulty and strain and stress. And uh, we know as Christians that we're, uh, that Christians are supposed to love one another. I mean, that's obvious from what the scriptures teach us and what we've learned through the years. And basically we can say that's true. Sure, we love one another. Christians love one another. It reminds me of uh, little cartoon strip, Peanuts, Charlie Schultz uh, strip that has such insights into human nature. One of the strips a few years ago had to do with Lucy, who was philosophizing on the nature of things. And in this particular strip, Lucy says, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> and that's the way it is with us in our relationships with one another. As Christians, we know we're supposed to love one another, but getting into the business of Personal relationships inevitably creates problems. I'm indebted to Brother Charles Simpson who mentioned something to me some years ago just in the course of a conversation that really stuck in my mind because we were talking about some problem or other that people were having and talking about the need for maturity. And Charles offered this definition of maturity which I commend to you. Charles said, to be mature is to be able to act redemptively in every situation. And I've heard a lot of definitions of maturity, but that, in a brief way, in a brief definition, is about the best I know. To be mature is to be able to act redemptively in every situation. And I confess in my own life there are lots of situations come up in which I find myself immature. I not only can't act redemptively, I don't want to in some situations. And I won't take time to enumerate some of those, but I'm tempted to. All right. We're going to be talking about reading now in this scripture the story of the struggle that arose among the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's a struggle coming out of misunderstandings and out of problems in their relationships. So we're in Numbers chapter 32 and I'm going to take time to read about the first 32 verses. Read it fairly rapidly. This story is going to take us clear through from the book of Numbers into to the first chapter of Joshua and clear over into the to the uh, 22nd chapter of Joshua to cover uh, all that's involved in the story. Now we're gonna, not going to read all those chapters, but, but it's an incident or a story or a struggle that takes uh, a considerable period of time to develop and to be resolved. Now the story begins at the point when the 12 tribes of Israel are coming to the end of their 40 years of wilderness wandering and they're poised on the edge of the, the Jordan River about to go across and take possession of the promised land. And uh, 
Moses is drawing near to the end of his life. In fact, this happens just uh, shortly before uh, he's taken on to be with the Lord and before Joshua then uh, assumes command. But there they are, poised on the 12, the 12 tribes, poised on the east side of the Jordan River, looking west across the river to the land that God has promised them. And Moses is vastly relieved because they're at the end of that period of 40 years of wilderness wandering that came about as a result of the bad report the 12 spies, 10 of the 12 spies had brought in 40 years before. And Moses is feeling relieved that that time is all behind them and that they're about to go on into the promised land even though he himself is not going to be privileged to go. Now I'm mentioning that because it has to do setting the stage of how Moses felt because it's going to explain something to us about his reaction to something that's about to happen. So here they are, these 12 tribes, uh, ready to go across. We're going to pick up the story now and read verse in chapter 32 in Numbers. I'm reading from the New International Version. The Reubenites and Gadites who had very large herds and flocks saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock, so they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and they said, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Hishbon, Elalai, Sebam, Nebo, and beyond, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel, that is the land they already occupied, uh, are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we found favor in, your, favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. Now, this request hit Moses like a ton of bricks. And he immediately reacted out of misunderstanding and suspicion. Uh, and he took to the idea, very, uh, not at all. He took a very dim view of the idea. This is his reaction. Moses said to the Gadites and the Reubenites, Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them to Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. After they went up to the valley of Eshcol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was aroused that day, and he swore this oath, because they've not followed me wholeheartedly. Not one of the 20 of the men, 20 years old or more, who came out of Egypt will see the land I promised on, earth to, on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they followed the Lord heartedly. And the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and they made them wander in the desert 40 years, and the whole, until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. Here Moses, with great emotion, is just reciting their past history of the 40 years. And then he says, And here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will leave again all this people in the desert, and you will be the cause of their destruction. So you can see Moses took a very dim view of the suggestion of these two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and we'll see that a half tribe of Manasseh joined them, who wanted not to cross the Jordan, but to stay on the side where there was the grassy land which was good for their cattle. But notice that they held firm to their conviction, to their vision. Then they came up to him, that is the two representatives from the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and a half tribe of Manasseh. They came up to him and said, we would like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children, but we're ready to arm ourselves and go ahead of the Israelites until we brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land, and we will not return to our homes until every Israelite has received his inheritance. 
We will not receive any inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan, on the east side. And then Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for battle, and if all of you will go armed over the Jordan before the Lord until he's driven his enemies out before him, then when the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land will be your possession before the Lord. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Build cities for your women and children and pens for your flock, but do what you have promised. The Gadonites and Reubenites said to Moses, We your servants will do as our Lord commands. Our children and wives and flocks and herds will remain here in the cities of Gilead, but your servants, every man armed for battle, will cross over to fight before the Lord, just as our Lord says. And then Moses gave orders about them to Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and to the family heads of the Israelite tribes. He said to them, If the Gadites and Reubenites, every man armed for battle, cross over Jordan with you before the Lord, then when the land is subdued, before you give them the land of Gilead as, they, as their possession. But if they do not cross over with you armed, they must accept their possession with you in Canaan. The Gadites and Reubenites answered, Your servants will do what the Lord has said. We will cross over before the Lord into Canaan armed, but the property we inherit will be on this side of the Jordan. So then Moses gave to Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the whole land with its cities and its territory round about them. Okay, so temporarily the problem is, is resolved. Moses gets over his angry reaction at what he thinks is rebellion, these two and a half tribes, when they explain that they're willing to take all of the men from their tribes and uh, send them into battle with the Israelites across the Jordan to help them come into their inheritance. And Moses said, okay, if you'll do that, then we'll all agree that this is to be your inheritance, that this is the land that God has given you, and you, two and a half tribes, can build your cities and your pens for your cattle and your homes for your wives and kids, and this will be in your inheritance, provided you come over and the men come over and fight with the rest of the tribes. So then in Joshua chapter 1, let's take just mention a scripture there briefly. This is By this time Moses has died and Joshua has become the leader. And the time comes to go in and uh, take the land. Joshua chapter 1 verse 10, Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now you'll cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving to you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that the Mosman, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord is giving, your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives and children, your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men fully armed must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest as he's done for you and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your land which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Then they answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Now over in Joshua chapter 4, the priests walk down into the waters of the Jordan carrying the Ark of the Covenant. In another miracle, God stops the flow of the water. The water stands up like a wall on one side of them. The riverbed goes dry, and the Israelites, all of them start going across the Jordan River as the priests uh, stand there with the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of the Jordan. And 
That scripture tells us in chapter 4, verse 12, that the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed in front of the Israelites. They led the way. Armed in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed. And about 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. You could even check it more carefully in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. It says that there were actually 44,760 men of the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and a half a tribe of Manasseh who led the way of the other nine and a half tribes into the promised land in order to fight their battles for them. All right, now turn on over to Joshua chapter 22. Now those battles went on for years. And these men fought side by side, the Reuben, Gad, and a half tribe Manasseh. Those men shed their blood. Many of them died in order to see the other nine and a half tribes uh, drive out the occupants of the lands, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, and all the otherites that were occupying uh, the promised land until all of those tribes had won their possession with the help of the, of the uh, two and a half tribes, many of them who died in behalf of their brothers. So now all of that is over and the time is coming for the dividing up of the land uh, and, and uh, the settling of, of accounts. And this is in chapter 22 when Joshua gives a commission for the two and a half tribes to return home. So let's look at that. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You've done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you've obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, now we don't know how long, but it was years. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the laws that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, obey his commandments, to hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and soul. Verse 9, So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to Geliloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they'd built the altar on the border of, of Canaan at Geliloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now isn't that amazing? After all that's happened, after the years of fighting side by side with their brothers, and now the fighting's done and they start to go back to their own land and they pause to build this uh, altar there in the river. Immediately, by the river, immediately all of the rest of the tribes misunderstand and they're ready to go in and slaughter the whole two and a half tribes. Now fortunately they don't do that. They just appoint people from the leaders from the tribes to go and confront the two and a half tribes for what they believe is their rebellion. So let's read the rest of it. Uh, so the Israelites, verse 13, so the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest of the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And with him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. And when they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against Him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this day we've not cleansed ourselves from that sin. 
even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. That's when Balaam, the false prophet, led the children of Israel to worship Baal and God sent a plague upon them and slaughtered 24,000 of them, killed Balaam as well. Are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. Now, who does that sound like? You remember Moses just a few years ago? If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan the son of Zerah acted unfaithfully regarding devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? And he was not the only one who died for his sin. Well, you can see the amazing picture that emerges. Now what we're going to talk about now, what we're going to try to unravel for you is why after all of these years of loyalty and service and commitment and sacrifice and giving their actual lives for their brothers, why did this misunderstanding suddenly arise against the two and a half tribes? It's a classic scriptural story of misunderstanding. It's a classical story of what we would call a persecuted minority. The problem really began because Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had a different vision from the other nine and a half tribes. Now, as a people, we know something of the kind of problems that can come with that. Uh, through the last decade, we've suffered more than our share of misunderstanding in the body of Christ because we have a unique vision. It has to do with covenant, has to do with pastoral care, has to do with excellence, has to do with uh, commitment and trust and working together. But the Bible makes it clear and history makes it clear, human experience makes it clear that any time there's a group of people that catches a different vision, they are immediately suspect. First thing that happens when somebody comes up with a different idea is that the other folk won't allow it to be different, they say it's wrong. And you really need to kind of needlepoint that. Just remember that nearly always the first reaction we have when somebody different appears is not that he, simply that he's different, it's that he's wrong. He's wrong because he's different. And that's basis enough. And so here are these two and a half tribes. Come to Moses. And we need to, we need to go back and look at, at why Moses reacted the way he did back in the early part of that story. These two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and a half a tribe of Manasseh, come to Moses. They're poised there on the border of the river, and they say, we want to stay on this side. God has shown us that this is the land where we can raise our cattle and raise our families, and God's, going to give a, God's giving us this portion for our inheritance, and we don't want to go in and inhabit the land with the rest. And we saw how Moses immediately reacted in a very violent way. But if we can understand why Moses reacted the way he did. It'll help us understand the problems that leaders have with their people. Leaders are just human. They're just ordinary folks who've been given extraordinary responsibilities. Uh, in many cases, they're not a whole lot wiser or braver or more noble or anything else than anybody else. The only difference is that they've been shouldered with a responsibility that has to do with looking after or leading other people. They're not perfect. Leaders, men, put their pants on one leg at a time just like ordinary people do. And uh, they have their suspicions and their fears and their weaknesses, uh, which they have to battle along with holding their responsibilities. Now, you have to understand Moses was a man uniquely called of God, and God had given him a vision to go and to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And we know all of the history that had to do with that, the plagues 
and then the pillar of cloud of fire and day, a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, and how two and a half million of them took out of Egypt and went out into the promised land and made their way over to the, uh, out into the wilderness and made their way over to the promised land and were to go in and enter the land. But Moses sent in 12 spies first. And the 10 of the 12 spies came back and brought an evil report, said there's giants in the land, walled cities, fortresses, uh, we can't possibly take the land. Uh, Caleb and Joshua were the only two who said, yeah, there are giants there, but it's a good land and we can take it. And the Israelites listened to the 10 tribes and rebelled. And God started to destroy them and only by Moses' intercession did he fail to do that. But then God said, because of the rebellion of those 10 spies, you're gonna wander in the wilderness one year for every day that they went in to spy out the land. They went in to spy out the land 40 days and for one day for every year, one year for every day, they were gonna to have to wander in the, in the wilderness. Now Moses had to go ahead and lead them through that. It wasn't his fault. He'd done everything that he knew to do. And he had, he had to stay faithful to God and to look after those people in all their wilderness wandering, lead them into the battle of the people that would come up against them and listen to all of their murmurings through those 40 years. And finally, when it's all just about over and they're right there on the edge of the river, ready to cross over, these two and a half tribes come up with this strange revelation. They've got a different vision. They've got a different uh, uh, revelation from God. You can understand then why Moses was suspicious. He tended to be a little cynical. After all, he'd been having to nurse that group of murmuring Israelites for 40 years because of a rebellion that he himself was not responsible for. So he can understand why he had problems with it. Now, like every leader, Moses was struggling with a vision that was larger than he was. Uh, and like every leader who has a vision, any vision that we have of the purpose of God is always smaller than, that, than God's actual purpose for us. But like Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. We only see in part. And Moses was a little bit narrow-minded in his vision in that he could not possibly conceive of any elaboration of that revelation from God that the 12 tribes were to go in and inhabit uh, the land across the river. It never occurred to him that anybody would want to settle on the east side. And so it took him by surprise. He was stunned when these two and a half tribes came up with what they were convinced was a revelation from God. And he rejected it out of hand and accused them of, uh, of all kinds of things. He accused them first of all in verse 6 there in Numbers 32. He said they were cowards. And then he said they were trying to discourage the nine and a half tribes. And then he equaled their actions to the ten rebellious tribes who had brought back an evil report. And then he said, you're even more evil than they are. And because of what you're doing, we're going to have to wander another 40 years here in the wilderness. And you can understand why Moses felt like he did. But one of the things that proves to us that the two and a half tribes were valid, that their revelation from God was valid, was the way they conducted themselves in the, in the face of Moses' reaction. They didn't break off in anger. They didn't, uh, they didn't yell at Moses. The Bible said they just drew close to him and shared again what their vision was. Uh, they held firm to their vision, which was a sign of their conviction and integrity. Uh, they continued to honor and respect those that were in authority. They didn't want to rebel against Moses or Eliezer or any of the rest. And finally, they showed their, their integrity by their willingness to support a different vision, to support the larger vision. Even though they saw their heritage in a somewhat different way, they said, we'll still give ourselves to the total picture. 
We'll send our men in ahead with all of your other men and we'll fight your battles with you until the whole thing is won. Now, experience shows us that lots of times there's going to be conflict between leaders or pastors and their people uh, for a number of reasons. One reason said is that, that ministers are human. We'll see that as we uh, go on later talking about some of the positive things about how to handle difficulties like this. We're going to see that, that leaders are human. They make mistakes. They have limited vision and they have their problems. And so they don't always respond to things they ought to weigh. How many of you here believe your pastor's perfect? Anybody want to hold up your hand? <laughs> How many of you pastors here believe your people are perfect? Anybody want to hold up a hand? So there are times when trials and difficulties come between leaders and their people that strain the bonds of unity, sometimes almost to the breaking point, and sometimes indeed the bonds do break. Uh, sometimes it's because, uh, obviously it's because of rebellion on the part of people. You can understand Moses' cynicism, Moses' frustration, because for 40 years he'd had to deal with the rebellious people who continually murmured against his leadership and the dealings of God, and yet he remained faithful to them. But you can understand why he got mad at the leaders of two and a half tribes. Uh, many times the people do rebel. People do rebel against their leadership. We need to remember that God puts pastors over us because there are certain things we need to be pastored in. Things we're not wise enough, smart enough, mature enough to do on our own. And we need adjustment. We need correction. We need encouragement. Uh, we need stability that only delegated authority can provide for us. You're familiar with all that. Uh, sometimes, though, those problems do arise, which leads to a separation. And part of the problem that we've had in the past is that in our eagerness to hold things together, those of us in leadership, uh, in our eagerness to hold things together, we have refused to allow people the freedom in God to receive a revelation or vision that's different from ours. And even when that vision or revelation comes, we've been reluctant to allow people to follow it or even sometimes have forbidden them to follow it. No wonder then, occasionally, when the bonds of covenant are broken, there's been bitterness. You see, part of the reason we have problems in what we're doing is because we believe so strongly in it. And the more closely tied, the more intimate relationships are, the more painful they are when they break. It's bad enough for a boy and a girl who've been going together to break up. Each will feel a little blue for a while. It's worse if they were engaged for a period and break up. It's a whole lot worse if they've been married for 15 years and then divorced. There's more pain involved. The more intimate and long-lasting the relationship, the more pain involved in it. But this is the kind of thing we have to struggle with. Our, as I said, the mark of maturity has to do with how we handle our relationships to other people. Now, we're saying that the problem, basic problem here was that the two and a half tribes were nonconformists. That is, they had a different vision and that caused them problems. But there were some other problems, including I want to I list now, Ten factors that were involved in the misunderstanding. If you have pencil, you might want to make note of them, pencil and paper. First one was the nonconformity, we've already mentioned. The two and a half tribes were different. And that immediately caused suspicion. The second one was the lack of clear communication. Now, we haven't talked about it yet, but we read how these two and a half tribes, as they started back after Joshua gave them permission to return home, they started back to the river. Just they stopped at the riverbank, still on the nine and a half tribe side of the river and there they built this altar. And it was the building of this altar that caused the nine and a half tribes to misunderstand as we'll see in a moment. 
Now, a lot of the problem would have been solved if the two and a half tribes had told the nine and a half tribes what they were going to do. The second factor in misunderstanding is lack of communication, lack of clear communication. The two and a half tribes didn't let the other tribes know why they were erecting that altar. Now, the third reason, third factor in the misunderstanding was what I call hidden suspicions. There's just something, an absence of love and trust, just something uh, in people's relationships that tends to make them suspicious of one another. I don't know, call it the carnal nature, call it spiritual warfare, call it the work of the whatever it is, there's something in us that tends to make us suspicious of anybody who says or does anything different. That we tend to react in the wrong way. A fourth problem or factor in the misunderstanding was self-interest. We might call it tribal loyalty. Uh, we have our own group and we're very close and we're very careful about the way we do certain things and when somebody else does something a different way, we feel it's going to affect us negatively and so you know the kind of competition and uh, jealousy that can arise out of fierce loyalties in a clan or a family or a tribe. So self-interest or tribal loyalty is a fourth factor in the misunderstanding. The fifth, which is really important, I could preach a whole message on this alone. The fifth is what I call misreading the evidence. And let me say in regard to that at this point, when it comes to trying to deal with people and their problems, or comes to try to understand things that are going on that you don't understand, remember this, you cannot, most times you cannot believe anything of what you hear and only half of what you see. Because the devil is out to create all kinds of misunderstandings. And when those misunderstandings begin, when there are differences of opinion arise, almost in every case, because of prejudice and because of suspicions and other reasons, you will not really hear correctly. You'll not be able to believe what you hear, and you probably shouldn't believe half what you see. Because the problem that the two and a half tribes had here from the nine and a half, the nine and a half were absolutely sure because they saw that altar that they knew they had the goods on the two and a half tribes. You're in rebellion, you're worshiping Baal, you're worthy of death, that's what they said, and we've got the goods on you because you built that altar right there by the river. And don't deny it. The nine and a half tribes were positive that the two and a half tribes had gone into rebellion. The author Oscar Wilde was a man who wrote, said to be positive is to be mistaken at the top of one's voice. And you're going to see that these nine and a half tribes were mistaken. But I want, you to, I want to press on the point that they were so sure that they were right and the two and a half tribes were wrong because they had the goods on them. They caught them in the act. There was the altar. That's proof, absolute proof. Except they were absolutely wrong. Misreading the evidence. Sixth problem, sixth factor, previous problems. This harkens back to the suspicions that Moses had. You remember the first argument when they came to Moses and said, we want to stay on this side. And Moses accused them of being uh, evil, accused them of being a whole new brood of sinners, accused them of being like the ten spies who brought in the evil report, and all the other leaders standing around listening to Moses chastise those leaders of the two and a half tribes. And even though the two and a half tribes had sent their men in and fought years and years beside their brothers to prove their loyalty, as soon as a question arose, it's like all of that sacrifice amounted to nothing. That's kind of serious to realizing that you may be laying down your life for your brother and then 10 minutes later when something suspicious happens, he forgets all about the sacrifice you made. But I want to tell you, that's how hard it is to live together. 
That's how hard it is to overcome those things that the devil would use to separate us from one another. It's so much easier to believe the negative than the positive. Could totally disregard years of bloody sacrificial service and loyalty given and hearken back to the original suspicions and say the new suspicions simply confirm what we thought in the first place. Yeah, I knew all the time those guys were fighting with us, we really couldn't trust them. And this is proof. You understand the frustration that the leaders of the two and a half tribes must have had. Number seven, lack of covenant, lack of trust, lack of commitment. The commitment between the 12 tribes wasn't strong enough to hold them. They were walking in the form of covenant, but not in its content. Number eight factor in misunderstanding, hasty action. The nine and a half tribes made a mistake in judgment, but they didn't wait to try to get it checked out. They immediately swung into action. Thank God they did hesitate long enough to send leaders over to talk about it rather than just sending their soldiers over to massacre the two and a half tribes. Number eight was errors in judgment. Number nine, another one that we all wrestle with. Number nine, readiness to believe the worst instead of the best. Willingness to attribute evil motives to our friends and brothers. Might even say eagerness to attribute evil motives. And the tenth was fear of the future. We'll mention that briefly a little later. There was, it was fear of the future that prompted, part of the reason that prompted the ten, two and a half tribes to build their altar. Now I want to talk briefly about the fact that since this is such a negative situation, we say, well, why did God allow that to happen? I want to suggest that there's a purpose in persecution. And I want to list for you briefly just five things that God can accomplish. Five things that persecution and misunderstanding and criticism and opposition are designed to do if we'll let them. Uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not exactly the kind of news we like to hear, but it's true. The thing that makes it difficult to hear is the fact that most of the persecution doesn't come from the world, it comes from our brothers and sisters. It's the misunderstanding that comes as we try to live together as Christians. Uh, we also need to have to understand, I haven't listed the five yet, this is just preliminary to it. Uh, as wonderful as the miracles and the answered prayer and the gifts of the Spirit and the blessings and all of these things are, they don't produce character. You don't grow when all kinds of wonderful things are happening to you. You grow when all kinds of rough things are happening to you and you have to endure it for the Lord's sake. No growth goes on mountain peaks. Growth takes place in the valleys in between. As wonderful as it was to be on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Peter and James and John were up there and Moses and Elijah appeared and Jesus was transfigured and everything was wonderful and the voice of God spoke and Peter was so excited. He said, Lord, it's so good to be here. Let's just build three tabernacles and stay right up here. We'll build one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Jesus said, no, we've got to go back down to the bottom of the hill. And what did they find at the bottom of the hill? An epileptic boy who needed ministry. Uh, and the other disciples were down there in that valley wrestling with a thing they didn't have faith to handle. But growth doesn't take place on mountain peaks. Now, thank God for the mountain peaks. Thank God for periods of rest. But our growth goes in times of struggle. No strain, no struggle, no growth. Those of you who are engaged in uh, aerobics and all of that sort of thing, exercise, realize that. No strain, no struggle, no 
no growth or no increase in strength. Uh, still, I'm not listening to these yet. I'm just making some observations. One is that enemies are as much a part of God's plan for us as our friends are. You ever stop to think what you'd be like if you didn't have anybody to criticize you or to withstand you or to oppose what you're doing or to question what you're doing, call into question what you're doing? If we were just lived in a life where nobody, everybody just thought we were wonderful all the time and just thought every decision we made and every word that fell from our lips was straight from heaven and that we could never make any mistakes, we'd be the most insufferable people to live with. But you see, our friends, most of the time, our friends put up with those things, they, uh, with our weaknesses. We, they don't criticize us. Now, sometimes they will, but oftentimes they just, <laughs> that's the way he is, and they bear with us. But our enemies, those who persecute us and are critics, and stand, boy, they don't mind telling it like it is or like they think it is. And so our enemies are part as much of God's plan for us as our friends are. Every man needs to be withstood. Okay, what does persecution and opposition then accomplish? Let me mention quickly just five things. Number one is they'll keep us humble, keep us from thinking too highly of ourselves. Number two, they'll make us re-examine our motives and purify them. Lots of times we take stands or say things or do things in haste, even though superficially we think it's a good idea, but we haven't really thought it through. And when suddenly we come up against all kinds of criticism and opposition, it'll stop and make us wonder if we're really on the right path after all. The third thing persecution will accomplish is that it reveals our faults and our flaws. Some of that persecution is justified. Some of the opposition is justified because we do make mistakes. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The fourth thing that persecution will accomplish is that it teaches us endurance, makes us count the cost. And the fifth is that it makes us less prone to error and more prone to exercise care and diligence. In short, persecution and opposition builds character. That's why we have it. That's why God lets it come. All right, now finally I want to talk for a while about the final part, to talk about dealing redemptively with the persecution and the opposition and the misunderstanding that comes. Uh, this was a crisis which really had a happy solution. Why don't we go ahead and read the rest of the story. And up to this point, uh, the nine and a half tribes are absolutely sure that uh, the two and a half tribes were in rebellion and had deserted God. So they said, you know, why are you building this altar and deserting? If you want to, why don't you come over to the Lord's land and worship where the altar is and so forth. Now we want to read the response of the two and a half tribes beginning with verse 21 in Joshua 22. They've been accused of breaking faith with Israel, of turning away from the Lord, of building an altar in rebellion, and of bringing the judgment of God upon themselves and upon the rest. Verse 21, Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord, He knows, and let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to, offer, to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's the fear of the future. 
we were talking about as one of the factors in the misunderstanding. Uh, Verse 26, that is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifice, and fellowship offerings. And then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar. Not an altar, a model, a replica, a representation, a reminder. Look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. The very thing that the two and a half tribes did, which they were accused of being in rebellion, the actual reason they built it was as a witness or testimony to the unity of the 12 tribes. And so the thing that was believed about them was the exact opposite of what was true. And the nine and a half tribes were so sure because they had the altar right there for proof. And they were 100% wrong in their interpretation of the motives of their brothers who built the altar not in sin or in rebellion, but built the altar as a reminder to them and to their brothers that they all belonged to the same family. And they said to the nine and a half, said, we know where the true altar is. We know it's over there in Canaan with you. We know where we'll come and offer our sacrificial offerings. But we built this as a reminder that we're all a part of the same family. Verse 29, far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest, the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of Israelites heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully because, uh, toward the Lord in this matter, and now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hands. What Phinehas is saying, said, Man, we were ready to mop up the floor with you guys, and if we had, we would have been under the judgment of God. Thank God you told us the truth. And I say, thank God they believed it when they heard it. Sometimes when you tell the truth, people still won't believe. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, the leaders returned to Canaan from their meetings with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead, reported to the Israelites, and they were glad to hear the report and praise God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. Thank God for stories that have happy endings. All right, now I want to talk just briefly about some steps in how to deal redemptively with these kinds of misunderstandings. Number one, get all the facts. Make sure you know what you're talking about before you jump to the wrong conclusion. 95% of our problems comes here from lack of adequate communication or lack of trying to understand another brother's point of view. When there's a lot of heat in a situation, people don't hear what's being said. And sometimes people are trying to communicate, don't communicate clearly in the heat of the thing. But it's so easy to misunderstand what's said, what's being said, or to act on just a portion of the truth.
And to have only half the truth is no better than having none of the truth. Number two, don't repeat gossip and rumors and half-truths. Not only be careful what you hear, but if you don't have all the facts, be careful you don't say anything. Reserve your judgment. When you begin to hear rumors about someone or you first hear things that, that make you suspicious, and this has happened not only between churches or within churches, it happens within families. Now, parents and kids and brothers and sisters. And it's hard when parents, you parents know how hard it is when your kids get into some kind of ruckus and each one's blaming the other. And you don't know exactly how to ferret out the truth. I'll be like my mother. I grew up with two brothers. We fought a lot, kids, and sometimes my mother would take a hairbrush and whack all three of us just to make sure she got the right one. She said, I can't figure out which one it is. We'd, the innocent ones would holler, and she said, I can't help it. This is the only way I can be sure I'm going to get the right one. <laughs> don't repeat gossip and rumors and half-truths. Third redemptive step, believe the best and not the worst. Be willing to attribute honest motives to other people. I don't know why this is so hard for Christians. Well, I do know, too. It's just because we're honoring. But it is hard for us to do. It's so much easier, especially if we've already heard something bad about someone, that colors our reaction. And it immediately puts our friend on the defensive. And when he tries to explain why the thing's not true, we've already conditioned ourselves to believe that what we've heard is wrong, is true. And so then his defense is suspect. We don't tend to suspect the first evil report. We tend to believe it. And then when the true report comes or the defense comes, we're already conditioned against believing it. Shouldn't be that way, but it is. So we need to make an honest effort and pray to God to give us the ability to believe the best and not the worst, to attribute honest motives to others. Something about the, when we whisper somebody something to somebody, then, well, in the first place, if we whisper it, it's usually bad. We don't whisper good news. We whisper gossip. And uh, the truth is that we tend to welcome gossip a lot more than we welcome good news. If it's good news, it's not gossip. Bad news is gossip. Half-truths are gossip. Lies are gossip. Good news, somehow it's just we don't get too excited usually about good news about somebody, especially if we've been a little suspicious of them already. Don't repeat gossip and have to believe the best and not the worst. Number four, recognize and allow for legitimate differences. Talk about this earlier. Just because a person's different doesn't mean that he's wrong. People, as important as what we're involved in is, as important as the covenant life is, we do not have a corner on the market of God's grace. There are millions and millions of Christians who do not understand or are not interested in what we're doing in terms of covenant life, who are moving powerfully in the grace of God, who never heard about us. And they're fulfilling God's will and purpose for their lives. But somehow, because what we're into is so real and important to us, if we see or hear about them, we say, those poor folks, if they only knew the truth. Is it any wonder then that sometimes people say about us, those poor folks, if they only knew the truth? None of us have a corner on the grace of God. And even among our own people, we have differences. You know, scientists say that there, that there are no two snowflakes alike. If you ever, we don't get much snow down here, but if you ever live where it's snowing, you get a little snowstorm, get a little black piece of paper, black felt, and let a snowflake, tiny little snowflake, fall on. Now, they're real tiny, they're real flakes. Most of the things we call flakes, the big ones are collections. 
of individual flakes. But every little individual flake is a perfect hexagon in shape. It has a perfect six-sided shape to it. Every one of them is a perfect hexagon, but no two are alike. You could catch them and photograph them all day long, and some of you may have seen in encyclopedias photographs of the various patterns. But they're all hexagonal in shape, but there's no two of them alike. No two fingerprints alike. Out of all the millions and billions of people on earth, nobody else has a thumbprint like mine. I'm distinctive. You're distinctive. You're unique. I'm unique. God doesn't make two people alike. God doesn't make two Christians alike. None of us think alike. None of us respond exactly the same way. Why then is it so hard for us to recognize and allow for those legitimate differences? Even when we belong in the same family, we're not all alike. Sometimes one of the perils, we, problems we get into is we want to try to create little rubber stamp people that look like their leaders. Look and sound and act and respond like. And that's not God. Example is a wonderful thing. Uh, for a child, for a son to emulate his father is a wonderful thing. For men and women to look up to and respect and honor and want to imitate, in a sense, their leaders is all right. But let's, no cookie cutter copies. No rubber stamp copies. Everybody's different. And we have to be willing to allow for those legitimate differences and to allow for the fact that there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of work for the Lord that never heard of us. Remember the disciples coming to Jesus one day in great indignation. Lord, we saw a guy casting out demons and we told him to cut it out. Why? Because he wasn't one of us. What did Jesus say? boy, fellas. Lower the boom on him anytime you see that. No. Jesus said, let him alone. He who is not against us is for us. Now, why did the disciples do that? Because here was a guy obeying the will of God, using the power of God, who wasn't in their, quote, group, unquote. Need to recognize and allow for legitimate difference, legitimate callings. Not everybody's called to say or do the same thing. Some years ago when we were praying about our own situation, there was a prophecy among Charles and Bob and Derek and, and I don't know whether Ern was there, but some years ago we were talking about, the pro prophetic word came that we were to labor at our place on the wall. And the time was coming when God would join us to other workers on the wall. You know part of our problem is we think we're the whole wall. We don't know that there's another lot of wall out there that other people are working because we become so preoccupied with our little chunk of the wall. And lots of times, now the time has come when we need to straighten up and look around and see that there are brothers and sisters laboring on a whole big wall that comprises the kingdom of God and to be willing to be joined to them. And you know something else? Their part of the wall ain't going to look like our part of the wall either because they're working from a different design and a different blueprint, all a part of God's kingdom purpose. Point number five of the seven redemptive steps to dealing with controversy. Allow for human error and weakness. Allow for human error and weakness. Be willing to let other people be human just like you want them to be willing to let you be human. Nobody's perfect. That is apart from Bruce Longstreth and myself and a couple of others. Everybody else has got problems. So we need to allow for human error. I want to use a kind of a personal illustration here. I, 
I would like to think when I have to be, time comes when I have to be answerable to the Lord that I will be able to say, Lord, I made it about 80% of the time. I'd like to get about a, at least a B or a B minus. <laughs> 80 out of 100. Now, on good days, on good periods, when I'm really with it with the Lord, I might make that 90. And on bad days, I might make it about 70. But overall, I'd say, I'd like to be able to say, Lord, Lord 80% of the time, I think I did okay. Now, what about that other 20% of the time? Well, I think about 10% of the time, looking back over my life, 10% of the time, I haven't been able to do what I should. I've been ignorant or immature or hasty or something. In other words, I, I would to God I could bring back some advice and counsel I gave years ago. I would to God I could recall a few messages that I've taught. <laughs> years ago, for a while, I taught a a message on the role of women in the church. <laughs> Didn't take me long to get smart enough to stop teaching on that. I can hint about it in other teachings, but to try to tell women how and what they ought to do in the church, I found out that's just inviting needless controversy. Some of those teachings, I wish I, uh, they caused more problems than they caused help, you know. So I wish I hadn't taught them. About 10% of the time, I've fallen short, in other words, out of ignorance or inability. I'd say another 7% of the time, I fail because I'm lazy. There's sometimes, I just, I'm just not one who's real geared to a fast pace. I've got friends and even relatives who just love to work under a lot of pressure. I've got a brother who's a retired colonel in the Air Force who's a highly successful public relations man today, the PhD degree and all that sort of thing. He was a colonel in the Air Force. Boy, he just thrives on, on stress and strain. The busier he is, the better he likes it and the more Stuff's going on that he has to sort out the better. Man, I can't do that. Uh, something in me just burns up and I want to get off and, you know, look at the bayous or go fishing or do something else. Uh, I just can't operate that pace. So I've got a streak of laziness inside. Uh, it's not that I'm afraid of hard work. I can lay down and go to sleep right next to it. But I worked with a pipeline crew years ago when I was a college kid, and boy, that's hard work in the summertime, take, laying or taking a pipe out in the Texas Mesquite Flats and so forth, and I tried to work hard, but I wasn't good at it some, and one of my foremen once accused me, he said, I bet you, he, he said to me, he says, I bet until you were 14 years old, you believed manual labor was a Mexican. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I don't, I just sometimes don't work as hard as other people do. Now, I think I may live longer. <laughs> Maybe it'd be better to, work, better to work not quite so hard and live to be 85 than to burn yourself out at 55. So, Anyway, maybe 7%, 10% ignorance, 7% laziness. Then I'd have to say 3% is just what I call downright honoriness. Sometimes I know I just don't want to do the will of God. I thank God Paul had that problem at times. You can read about it in Romans 5 and 6. Uh, and I'm not proud of it, but sometimes I just get out of the kingdom and I get crossways with God and I don't care whether school keeps or not. I'm just not going to be obedient. Times like that reminds me of the story of old Zeb and Zeke, of New England retired farmers who used to sit around the country store in Maine in the wintertime, spitting whittle club, whittling their sticks and talking to one another. And Zeb says to Zeke one day, Zeb says, well, I don't know why the Lord's leaving me here. And they went on whittling a while, and Zeke says, Well, Zeb, guess the Lord's leaving you here because he's got you for something for you to do. 
And he went on whittling while and said, said, well, maybe so, but I ain't going to do it. <laughs> you ever felt like that? How many of you here ever deliberately disobeyed God? Raise your hand. Put it the other way. How many of you feel you never did? <laughs> I'm not proud of those times, and you're not either. And thank God for forgiveness and repentance. Scripture says that if we are faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All right, but you see the point I'm making. This is point number uh, five, to allow for human error. The sixth point is to be quick to forgive. When you see somebody or you're caught in a situation where somebody's acting in an ungodly manner, be quick to forgive. Let me tell you something about that 20% and that 80%. I don't want to be remembered for the 20%. I want credit for the 80%. Eight out of 10 times, I'm doing pretty good. Saying and doing things that are helpful. Being the right kind of husband and father and pastor and author and all the rest that God has called me to do. And that's what I want to be remembered for, the 80%. I don't want to be remembered for the 20%, for the 10% mistakes, the 7% laziness, or the 3% honoriness. But the devil is very fond of pointing his finger at the 20%. And those are the things that get elevated out of proportion. Those are the things that sooner or later will get out into the public eye. Not just about me, but about you. And how do you want to be remembered? Even if you're a 95% okay person. What about that 5%? Sooner or later, somebody, your critic or somebody else is going to zero in on that. Well, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want to be judged by? The 90% or the 95% or the 5%? The 80% or the 20%? I know, we all know the answer to that. All right, then, that's what leads us to six, number six point. Be quick to forgive. When somebody you put on a pedestal does some stupid, ignorant, ungodly thing, how do you react? Well, I knew all along he was like that. No. Uh-uh. All along he's like what you thought he was or she was. Just once in a while they flub. Once in a while they goof. So be quick to forgive. The seventh and last point is that we need to be answerable to somebody. And that's not news for us. We need to be under authority. We need to have pastoral oversight. We need to be accountable for what we say and how we react. We need to be adjusted when we're overly critical. And again, a lot of the problems we have in the body of Christ, misunderstandings come because men and women, good men and women, men and women in positions of leadership say things and criticize and, and refuse to be held accountable for what they say. And we could give great long lists of folks like this. But in my opinion, God considers perhaps judges more severely the person who does the criticizing than he does the person who's being criticized about. Because the person who's not living up to what he ought to be at that particular time usually knows it and usually realizes he's making a fool of himself or he's out of the will of God and he's miserable inside. And he doesn't need somebody to come along and point the finger at him. Well, if we're under proper spiritual authority and proper oversight, if we have to be answerable for the things that we say, then we'll be less prone to point the finger and to say those things uh, that are not helpful. Remember the definition we gave in the beginning of maturity. To be mature is to be able to act redemptively in every situation. So the next time, the next time your pastor, your husband, your wife, your father, your mother, your friend, teacher in the body of Christ, whoever it is, falls short 
try to respond and react to that in a way that will not cause division or cause additional harm or cause hurt, but rather will serve the purposes of God to redeem and to heal and to restore and to bring together. The only way I know to close this is just to suggest that there may be here today some of you who for a short or even a long period of time have been misjudging someone else. You've been looking at the 5% or the 10% or the 20% and ignoring the 80%. Might be with a wife or a husband or a member of your family, might be your pastor, might be a sheep, might be somebody you work with, your employer. Ask yourself as we close this morning if you've been guilty of that. And if you have, ask God to forgive you and make a resolve that you'll start looking at the 80% that you'll be careful not to say anything against a brother or sister. That even if you think you see something that makes it absolutely certain that they're wrong, be careful that you can't believe half what you see. And remember that. And be willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. And if necessary, today or before you leave or sometime in the next few days, you may need to go and make it right with someone that you've held these secret things against. And if you can do that, it'll make a difference the body of Christ. Amen? Where'd Bruce go? Bruce, you want to... I'll let Bruce close. Could you stand with me just a second? And I'm always interested in um, doing something with what we hear because we've heard a lot this morning that's really important for where we are as a church. Many have already left in this season to establish new works and obey God in certain areas. And I think that uh, it's been kind of hard of it on us as we watch them to go. But I want to make a confession. I, I, I took the um, seven things that Don said, and I thought if we could repeat these together and uh, needlepoint them, put them on our walls, I was going to say to Mike, maybe a good thing for us in integrity is a big billboard that says, the Lord helping me, I will. And then say these things over and over again because there will be many adjustments that will happen. Many brothers feel stirred up to go out and do things and we need to say these things. And I wonder if you could just repeat after me these seven things and we'll make it an I will thing. And I will do it, I, let's put it this way, the Lord helping me, I will. Could you repeat these things for me? And then I think it'll, I believe the power of life and death is in the tongue. And as we repeat these things, it'll get into our spirit. We will commit ourselves by God's grace to do the following. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it and then we'll say it together, okay? The Lord helping me, I will get all the facts on an issue, okay? The Lord helping me, I will get all the facts on an issue. The Lord helping me, I will not repeat gossip, rumors, or half-truths. The Lord helping me, I will not repeat gossip, rumors, or half-truths. The Lord helping me, I will believe the best about everyone. The Lord helping me, I will believe the best about everyone. I think the next thing is welcome good news. Is that what I have? What do I have on point four, Don? Recognize legitimate differences. Is that four? That's four. Okay, I got it. I got it. All kinds of notes here. The Lord helping me, I will re recognize legitimate differences. The Lord helping me, I will recognize legitimate differences. 
Number five is the Lord helping me. I will allow for human error and weaknesses. <clears throat> kind of stuck in my throat. I need some deliverance here. Okay, let's go. <laughs> okay, let's do it. The Lord helping me, I will allow for human error and weaknesses. The Lord helping me, I will be quick to forgive. Let's say it. The Lord helping me, I will be quick to forgive. And the final one is the Lord helping me, I will be accountable for my behavior and my communication. The Lord helping me, I will be accountable for my behavior and my communication. Let's pray. Lord, we have spoken the issue with our mouth. And we have said that by your grace and with your help, we will do these things. Lord, make us a people of our word. We realize, Lord Jesus, that in so stating these issues, we cannot do that apart from your grace. We cannot give full, obedient expression to these words unless we be energized by your Holy Spirit. Now I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would quicken us by your Spirit to not only be hearers of this word and speakers of this word, but doers of the word. We have heard the word, and your word says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need something from you, Lord Jesus that will enable us to perform the word of God that we've spoken. Quicken each person and forgive us, Lord, where we've failed you in these issues. And on this Lord's day, we commit ourselves by your grace to be accountable for all that we hear and say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. All God's people said, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Excellent.